Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John 3.16. Kind of an obscure scripture there. I don't know if you've ever read it before. John 3.16, probably the most well-known scripture in the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. It's hard to go to a ball game or a sporting event or public. You used to always see somebody with a sign. John 3.16, very well-known scripture. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever, that's a big word there, how many know that? Whoever, that cuts into a lot of people's doctrinal ideas, but the Bible says, Whoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him, His Son. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You, Lord. and uh, Lord, I just pray that Your Spirit right now, Holy Spirit, would uh, just quicken my, my words, Make them words of you, Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and speak to every heart, including myself. Uh, make this gospel simple to understand and, uh, hard to forget. And, um, speak directly to hearts and, uh, hide me. The person that I am, Lord, my personality, Lord God, hide that, Lord, behind your cross and speak your words, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Title of my message is Spiritual GPS. Okay, everybody knows what GPS is, right? It is a satellite location system that uh, locates you wherever you're at in the world. Right now, how many know that our phones have GPS? And we can be located right where we're at. In fact, this message, when I wrote it, I had to mark it out and put GPS because my original title was Spiritual Compass. And then I went, uh, how many have a little survival bag you put together? It's called a bug out bag. Well, I've got one because I watched a series on, uh, on TV on survival. I thought, man, that'd be cool to have one of those. Not that I'll ever use it, but I thought it was just fun kind of filling it up with survival stuff. So I was going to go to my little bug out bag, which I keep with me all the time. How many have ever heard of that? Is that a weird word? Okay, it's got all your survival stuff in it, right? A lot of men here know what I'm talking about. I know Ann knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. So I was going to go get my compass out, but I thought to myself, man, I feel really old because half of the congregation not going to know what a compass is. They're going to know what a GPS is, though. And how many know when you turn the GPS on... And you push that button that says location, 
it'll locate you with the GPS and it'll say, this is where you're at. So when you have a map, if your location is on, it'll show you exactly on the map where you're at. If your location is not on, it'll show you a map, right? It won't locate you though. And how many remember there, you know, when you would go to a place like the mall or St. Louis Zoo or somewhere that's a big area where you can get lost in? How many remember they would have those maps there and the map would show you everywhere you can go in a zoo, for instance, or a mall. But in order to figure out where you're at, you have to look and say, you are here. And then wherever you're at, if you're good at reading maps, which I'm sure um, men and women, everybody in here are good at reading maps, right? I'm just assuming that. Based on you are here, you can say, well, to the north of me, this is what I should see. To the south of me, I should see this. To the west, I should see this. And to the east, I should see this. And um, the Lord was just putting that on my heart. Um, that we need to locate where we're at spiritually. Like, where are we at right now? And it would be really incredible um, if we could somehow have a GPS spiritually. And there's only one group of people that are going to get out of this world and go to heaven. And that's those who are in Christ. And He is pre... Uh, it's been predetermined, it's been pre-established that only those in Christ will see heaven. He's predestined for heaven in Christ. And if we're in Christ, that's where we're headed. And if we're not in Christ, we're not headed there. And so it would be really awesome if we could just turn that locator on and just figure out where am I at? Am I in Christ or am I outside of Christ? And it's very difficult. In fact, I have something, I have a condition I think a lot of people suffer from. It's called spiritual anxiety. Okay, you know what anxiety is, right? Where you have concerns and you try to overcome your worries or your fears. Some of the fears are irrational. Some of the worries are legitimate. Um... Spiritual anxiety is a condition um, that I think a lot of the world has right now. And my anxiety doesn't have anything to do with my walk with the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit has borne witness in my heart that I'm in Christ. That location is on and I've had moments in my life where I was right on death's door and was about to die. And knew that I was as good as dead. In fact, I've told the story before of me drowning in the ocean and I knew that I was dead. I mean, there was literally no way for me to survive. I can't swim. Um, but yet I was never afraid of water. You know, always fishing, always in boats. When I go to the ocean, I'm fearless. And so I got out in the middle of a storm and got real deep in the ocean. It started dragging me out. Can't swim. Bouncing off the bottom several times and down to my last breath. And knowing that I was dead, there was no way that I was going to survive. I was convinced of it. And so right as I got to take my last breath, I just remember a peace that was on me. And I knew that I was right with God. So confident 
by the Holy Spirit that I was right with the Lord, that I was just thinking, man, if I could just get one look at my young son who was Braxton at the time. I said, I'm going to take my last breath just to see if I can look at him one last time. And that story is a beautiful story until I say that my sister and a friend threw a pink dragon with a rope on it and I seen it at the last second and they pulled me in and saved my life. But that GPS locator was on and I knew from the Holy Spirit that I was right with God. And I knew that my next breath that I would breathe would be in the presence of the Lord. And you say, well, man, why do you have spiritual anxiety? Mine isn't over my salvation. Um, and a lot of people it is. You don't know when you take your last breath where your eternity is going to be. And that's where my spiritual anxiety comes in. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I don't constantly evaluate my life because I know that my sins are forgiven. And I'm not trying to be the type of person that can be saved because he paid the price for me. And I am in his plan and I am in Christ. And there's no anxiety about that. But man, I, I'm just being honest. I worry. I have anxiety about the people around me. And to the point it makes me almost, um, almost hard to be around because I'm concerned. I don't, I can't turn on that locator and realize my family, my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, you know, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, the people that are a part of this church, I wish I could turn the locator on and see are they in Christ or are they not in Christ. And that gives me anxiety. And I've got to pray about that and I've got to have God try to help me with that because I can sometimes feel like, man, I'm not doing enough. What more can I do? How many have, how many have struggled with that? And especially the later the hour becomes, you struggle with it and you just, and God's put that in us to, and like I said, sometimes the anxiety is about yourself. You don't know if you're right with God and ready. And sometimes it's just everybody around you. You want everybody to be saved. And I, and I'll tell you, I don't want my worst enemy to miss out on, on heaven. Or to be involved in what may happen in the last days. And I especially don't want people that are close to me to experience that. So I'm just, you know, this message is not a, um, in fact, I just, I just wish that there weren't formal messages and formal, almost like sometimes it almost feels like you're giving a speech. And that's not what this is about. You know, this is about, you know, if this is my last message, What would it be? So what's it mean to believe in Him? You know, how can I communicate that without the white noise? How many know what it means, white noise? It's like you preach a message every week and they get used to hearing a message 
So they hear the message and they walk out and they may not even hear the message because all they hear is the same message, same person, the same speaker, the same Sunday routine. And sometimes I can't communicate that God loved the world. His one and only son died. And if we... If we believe in Him, we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. And if we don't believe in Him, we will have the opposite. We'll perish and not have everlasting life. And I wish that were the message every week. I wish I were communicating that every week because everybody... When you hear God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, one and only Son, that if we believe in Him, we won't perish but have everlasting life, then we all are excited because we all believe that when we push that locator, we're in Christ. But then we read further, and it says, but if we don't believe in Him, then we're condemned. And the Bible goes even further. Jesus, who they're talking about here, the one and only Son of God, says that many are those who will be on the road that leads to destruction, but few will be on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. So when I read John 3.16, I get excited because I know it's free. I know it's the Son of God. I know that He gave everything, and I know that He wants us to believe in Him. He wants whosoever. He, he really wants no one to perish. But I also understand the majority will perish. How many understand that from the Bible? The majority won't believe in Him and receive eternal life. The majority will not. And so I've got to communicate how is he going to separate the ones who believe in him and the ones who don't. Because the separation isn't nice people and bad people. I wish it were. I wish it were nice people and bad people. Because it's really easy to walk through life and go through your day and say, look, they're the bad person. And we classify ourselves always as the good person. And there's a lot of reasons we do that. But that's not biblical. To say they're the bad people and I'm the good person. Because the Bible doesn't separate the saved and the unsaved. The ones who believe in Him, the ones who don't, based on good works. It's not what you don't do that gets you to heaven. You can't say, well, I don't do what that person does. And I don't do what this person does. So I'm going to go to heaven. And the Bible doesn't, it doesn't use all these criteria that we use. It doesn't say, if I'm from America, I'm getting saved. Or if I'm from another country, I'm not. It's whosoever, it's one thing. There's one son and we have to believe in him. So what does it mean to believe in him? Well, John is the one that wrote John 3.16. And John was probably Jesus' closest friend. They were, I mean, if you, he at least it says he is. I don't know if I believe, you know, just because he says it, but he does say the one whom Jesus was really close to, John. 
And so he's writing about Jesus and said he's the one and only son. And when he opens his book, writing about the life of Christ, in fact, John is older when he writes this. He's an old man and he's thinking back about the life of Christ and writing all about him. And so when we say believe in him, what does John mean? That word is pisteo, which is a present tense that means I'm putting my entire trust in him. Like the one and only son of God that was sent to die for me, I'm putting all my trust in him. And so John begins to define why we should put our entire trust in him. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So this person that we're supposed to put our trust in, not only was with God in the beginning, but He was God. And it says, He was with God in the beginning, and through Him, through Jesus, the Son of God, All things were made. Through Jesus, the entire world that we live in was was made through Jesus Christ. It said, All things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was what? Life. There's no life except in Him. The life that we enjoy today was through Jesus Christ. In Him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's talking about himself here. Came as a, actually, no, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. He came to witness, to testify concerning that light. So that through Him, what? All might believe. He Himself was not the light. He came to witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every person that comes into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So God loved the world, sent his only son. Everything was made through his son. Everything was created through his son. All life is in his son. But when he came, we didn't recognize him as God. You know how I know we didn't recognize him? Because we mercilessly beat him and crucified him and killed him. God. Amazing. John goes on to say in John 14, verse 1 to 10. Jesus is talking here. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. My father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Because I am going there. Wait a minute. This is a human being walking on the earth telling them, don't let your heart be afraid. Believe in God and believe also. Can you imagine if another human being told you this? What if I walked in the room and said, believe in God, but also believe in me? Right? And I'm going away to a place. Okay, and what's the place you're going to? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm coming again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. And you know where 
and, and then you'll know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Jesus is saying, believe in God and believe in me. I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for all of you, those that believe in me, right? And if I say I'm going to that place, I'm going to that place, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And you're coming to the place with me. Okay, stop again. If that's a human being and I'm telling you this, okay, I'm saying, hey, I'm going to heaven here real soon. And I'm going to build houses for all of you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and I'm going to bring you to heaven with me. Isn't that amazing that a human being would say that? He's claiming to be God, claiming to go to heaven where God's at. And he goes on and he says, and you'll know the way where I'm going there. Now, how else would we know the way to heaven except by somebody who went there? Right? Thomas said, Lord, we have no, we don't know where you're going. We have no idea where you're going. So he says, how will we know the way if we don't know where you're going? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Bold statement. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And God is asking us, if we want to be saved from this world, to believe in Him. The only way, the only truth, the only life. He was prophesied from the Garden of Eden before the foundation of the world. This was the plan. The Garden of Eden, it said the Messiah would come. There were all kinds of hundreds of prophecies about every detail of the Messiah's life. And here He is. He shows up on earth the very day that they said He would arrive. He arrived in Jerusalem and they rejected Him and they didn't recognize Him as God. But He's saying, the only way to heaven, I'm going to go there. And you know how you're going to know I'm going to go there? Because I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the belly of the earth. I'm going to rise again. Okay, I'm going to walk on the earth. I'm going to let you see me. I'm going to let you feel my hands. I'm going to let you eat with me. I'm going to let you talk to me. And over 500 people spent time with him and bore witness to the fact that he walked with him. He died, was resurrected. And he said, when I get to heaven, you'll know it because I'll send the Holy Spirit. One of the most proven facts of history was he died Resurrected, walked among many witnesses and sent his Holy Spirit on the earth. And he's saying, believe in me. And so what God is asking us to do, in fact, he, he also says, I'm going to forgive your sins. And see, this is what's keeping us from a relationship with the Father. He says, first John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. And purify us of our unrighteousness. John 19.30, when we have received, when Jesus had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know what that word means? How many have ever, how many have ever went to like a pay for your car at the dealership or you pay a big bill, a couple hundred dollars and they got that stamp and it says paid in full. And they put their initials on it or put their name on it. How many have seen that? Like, man, I wish I had one of those. Wish I had one I could just stamp all my stuff. (laughs) Paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. This is the biggest thing that we're putting our trust in. When Jesus died, he used the accounting term 
of that period of time. In fact, all over the ancient world, that's exactly what they did is what we did. The same phrase that Jesus used on the cross, paid in full, is what he said when he died. And so we have to trust that he paid our sins in full. And the Bible says, blessed is the person whose sins are not held against them. Or imputed is the big word that nobody understands. Blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed against him, which means blessed is the person whose sins are not held against him. They're paid in full. And there are places in the Bible where it says, like in Jonah, that we forfeit that grace. Or we uh, don't take advantage of that grace. Or we don't uh, put our trust in the fact that he's paid for our sins. So when he's talking about believe in him, number one is I'm confessing my sins and I understand that they're paid in full. So now he's imputed or he's passed over my sins and now he's going to begin to impart righteousness. He's going to begin over the lifetime of the person whose sins have been imputed to begin to separate that person for himself, which is called righteousness or sanctification. How many know that? And so when you trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and the Savior of your life, you're saying, God, I receive your forgiveness of my sins and you are the Lord of my life. And some people say a prayer, but he never becomes the Lord of their life. And now that he's the Lord of my life, now I walk a life of obedience to him. You say, well, what if I mess up? He's already paid for your sins. But now I have to be obedient. And what is the first step of being obedient? I get water baptized. You say, well, wait a minute. Does the water baptism save you? No, it doesn't save you, but that's the first step of obedience. The Bible says it's not the washing away of the water that makes you saved. It's a good conscience you now have toward God. And so the first real step of obedience is just to tell everybody that, hey, he washed my sins away. I was dead in sin. I buried myself, and now I'm coming up in the resurrection of life. Then you say, well, what happens next? Well, now I become obedient to his word. And you know what the amazing thing is? You can't become obedient to his word unless you study it. You can't have the power to begin to allow God to change you until you, the Holy Spirit begins to speak to your heart. And so now we begin to learn how to pray and, and the Holy Spirit is now part of our prayer life. The Holy Spirit's part of our study life, part of our attending church and saying, Hey, challenge me with the word because now he's the Lord of my life. And a normal behavior for a believer is, Find a place where they teach the Word. Begin to learn to study the Word yourself. And this is called the life of discipleship. And you say, man, is that in the Bible? Matthew 28, 16 is called the Great Commission. In fact, all the Gospels talk about the commission that Christ gave believers. And it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Can you imagine this? They're now worshipping Him as God. Amazing. But some doubted still. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So how long are we supposed to be baptizing and teaching to obey everything that he commanded to the end of the age? And so this is the normal behavior. And you say, well, Chad, I'm not sure. I don't know if I've been baptized in water and or maybe when I did it, I didn't commit my life to Christ. And can I tell you something? We're going to be talking today about the path of salvation and making sure everybody in our body is able to follow that path. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about as an eldership is uh, we're going to, we're going to keep water in that tank. We're going to keep water in there. I mean, you say, man, I don't know. Um, can I be baptized right away? Yeah, we can do it right away. We can invite friends. We can do it in a ceremony with just family. You know, we can do a ceremony witnessed by our elders. We can do a ceremony in front of everybody where you tell them, but, but be obedient and just go forward with the, you know, you say, well, how do I do it? You say a prayer and just say, Lord, you are the Lord and the Savior of my life. And you say, well, man, what if I mess up and I have addictions? How many of you know part of the grace plan is that I'm repenting from everything? And you say, well, man, if I repent of everything and I turn away from it and I'm going toward Christ, what about my addictions? What about my addictions? What happens with my addictions? How many know that when you've repented and you don't have the ability, even at your best day, to overcome a stronghold, how many know that God's grace will cover you? And you say, well, what if I don't repent? What if I like it and I just want to keep it? And the Bible says that many will be condemned in that John three seventeen and 18 because they love darkness more than light. They love their deeds of evil more than the light of Christ. They love darkness more than light, the Bible says. And so there are two kinds of people. There's one that actually repents and says, I'm going to serve him, but they have addictions, they have strongholds, and God has them under his grace umbrella. How many know that? And then there are those that don't ever truly repent and say, you know what? I love the darkness more than I love the light. And that is not a person who's forgiven. But if you're forgiven and you're struggling with strongholds, God's grace will cover you. How many understand the difference? And so God expects us to accept Him as the Lord and Savior of our life, move forward, and He's going to help us over the course of our life to break every chain, every bond, every addiction, everything that we struggle with. You say, do I have to be right on day one? No, you have to completely repent. And God, over the course of time, is going to impart His righteousness into your life. Over the course of your life, He's going to clean you up and He's going to do a work of the Holy Spirit. And there won't be a single chain left in you by the time He's done. Hallelujah. His grace is that powerful. He says, 2 Corinthians 5.19, But God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us that message of reconciliation. Hallelujah. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now where remission of, where remission of these is, there is no more an offering for sin. It means He died once and for all for your sins. Past, present, future. He died for you. When you're in His grace 
cocoon, how many know your sins aren't held against you? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. I've trusted Him with my life. But I still fail. Hallelujah. Psalm 103.12 As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgression from us. Hallelujah. You know how far the east is from the west? Pretty far. Alright? I'm not a genius. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Micah 7.19 He will again take pity on us. He will trample on our wrongdoings. How many want God to trample on your wrongdoings? Hallelujah. This is what happens when you're in His grace. Hallelujah. He will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You know how deep the ocean is? Again, I'm not a genius. I can't explain it. It's deep. Hallelujah. How many knew that I wasn't a genius? I'm not telling anybody. Okay, good. That was very emphatic. I appreciate that. All right. So I follow him in discipleship. Water baptism is a part of that. Prayer is a part of that. Living according to his word and learning his word is a part of that. How many of you know communion is a part of that? Next week we'll be doing communion. Hallelujah. We got a little out of whack during the pandemic. Next week we'll be doing a, a communion. And we may, I would love to see us doing that so regularly. It's just a regular thing. How many of you know the Lord asks us to take communion. You know why? Because it is in a moment to examine yourself to see if you be in Christ. Paul said examine to see if you are in Christ. And that is a time to examine your life and make sure, hey, am I still trusting, pastel, present tense, believing in Christ for my life? Hallelujah. And so that's a big part of it. Coming together, taking communion, examining our lives, making sure we're still in Christ. Notice I didn't say making sure we're still perfect. How many know it means something when you have the body that was broken, the blood who died for you? How many know that means something when you failed? How many know that? It means something when you failed. Hallelujah. Okay, now let me ask this question. Like I said, I'm just having a conversation. This could be my last. Every week could be the last time I get a chance to speak to somebody or to speak for my, even as a pastor. And uh, so how long do I have to answer the question about believing in Christ? How long do I have to answer that question? And here's the first answer. Every generation had one thing that determine how long you have. The Bible says that as long as you have life in your body, there's hope. The Bible says. Now I've noticed and most polls will back up that when a person is younger, it's more common to give your life to Christ. And as you age, it's less common. How many know that? Because the Bible says that the heart is deceitful among all things. How many know you can deceive yourself and not give your believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life? The younger, the better, the less deception is there. Um, But as you get older, this deception just constantly beats down on a soul. How many know that? And sometimes we think that there's a lot of things in life that are more important than whether I believe in Christ and have a saving faith. So death is every generation. Death is the ultimate end to your ability to make that decision to receive Christ or reject 
and be condemned. And so we have to willingly, we have to openly, and you say, well, man, I don't know if I've done that. And there's a lot of people here. That's the number one question today. That's the number one question you have to answer. And if you have to privately ask me or somebody else who is close to the Lord, that's the question you have to answer today. Because here's the truth. We all have no idea when we're going to die. We have no clue when our moment is coming and we don't know how quickly it's going to happen. Every day in the news and even people in our lives, we see how many have seen sudden deaths so quick and so fast we didn't even know it was coming. How many know a heart attack happens? You don't know it's coming and just suddenly you're just like, your mind is just, I'm gone. When I was in the ocean that day, it was sudden, it was a moment And I had no time really to do anything except look one last time at the world around me. I mean, automobile accidents are very sudden. Uh, You know, I talk to officers that do those scenes. And some of the scenes that they find, I mean, somebody on their phone, in an instant, our life could be gone. It doesn't matter if you're young, if you're a child, uh, if you're a teenager, if you're a middle-aged person. Death is like a major thing and, and and the ability to make that decision is gone once life drains out of your body. There's no ability to make this decision that I'm talking about. And so that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation because tomorrow isn't guaranteed at all. And so wh- how long do I have to answer the question? It's today. And that's where a lot of my spiritual anxiety comes because I know Every time a family member is, how many, how many get that anxiety spiritually every time there's a snowstorm or there's a heavy rain and you've got people driving and, you know, and you know that they like their cell phone and you're like, I hope they're not on their cell phone, you know, while they're driving or, you know, a tornado comes or maybe they're on vacation, there's a hurricane and all these moments where there's, there's this danger, which be honest, we have no, no, we have no ability to know when it's that moment. And, but we're, it's heightened sometimes and that anxiety comes in and it's either anxiety that I'm not right or anxiety that the people around me aren't right. It's spiritual anxiety and God wants to cure it. Um, then there's another thing, a whole different situation that when we say, how long do I have to answer the question? The next one is, there is a generation that's unique from all other generations. There's one generation that's absolutely unique. And the Bible talks about that generation more than probably almost any other generation. And it's just the generation where the tribulation will occur. And so this idea of the tribulation is all the way through the Old Testament. That there's going to come a day... Okay, and let me be very clear because I'm trying to talk to you from somebody that's studied the Bible for 25 years and 30 years maybe and just endlessly, like constant study for 25, 30 years. And I wouldn't want to go out of this world and not share what's in my heart for people that I love. This tribulation period will start on a very specific time. The Bible says that there will be a person, an individual, there's a spirit of Antichrist, which you see in all generations, but then there will be an individual, a specific pronoun, and a capital letter, a literal person who embodies that personality called the Antichrist. 
And it says that this Antichrist will sign a seven-year peace deal with a specific nation. And that nation is Israel. And so theology, the study of end times is called eschatology in the Bible. And the study of end times, they've always tried to figure out these mysterious things that the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. There's going to be a generation that's going to encounter the day of the Lord and this tribulation period, and it's going to be kicked off by a person called the Antichrist who signs a seven-year peace treaty with a nation named Israel. Okay, and here's the problem. Everybody's tried to figure out the end times and how this is going to happen, and so Revelation was a book that people had a hard time figuring out for a long time. In fact, uh, you look at the early church and you study the earliest writers and the biblical writers, and they all were uh, in agreement on one thing, and that was that the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ uh, that I read in, in John chapter 14. Now, now hear me very carefully here. This will help you sort out a lot of online uh, prophetic theology, okay? That's all over the boards when you go online. And I'm going to clear a lot of it up because I want everybody clear on what possibly could happen in our generation. Okay, John chapter 14, um, the tribulation. So the tribulation that it talked about coming, um, the prophetic people, one, one thing they knew for sure in the first century was that there was an imminent return of Christ. When he talks in John 14, i got my thought back now. When you get to John 14, it's the imminent return of Christ to come and get his church, okay? And that imminent return of Christ had no signs. Okay, there's, in fact, it's the word parousia. Very important word in the Bible, and it means the coming of Christ, okay? And in the Bible, you see all types of identifications about the coming of Christ. And you start to put them all together, and you start to realize they're not the same event. In fact, this is what prophecy, people that study prophecy very carefully and very literally begin to understand that the Bible keeps talking about the Lord coming. And as you put down all the characteristics of each coming, they're two different times. And that was hard for people to figure out. They couldn't sort that out over the years. Why is in one of these comings, is he in the air? He's in the air and they're coming to him. That's the rapture that we talk about. He's in the air. They're coming to him And he's making a promise that is a mystery that nobody has ever heard before and now is being revealed by Jesus and Paul. And that mystery is that I'm preparing a place. You're coming unto me in the clouds and you'll go be with me for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? And so all of those prophecies were the same. Him in the clouds, church coming to him, going into heaven, going up. And then there's a whole other set of the coming of Christ. In fact, uh, uh, prophecy teachers and people that study the Bible call it parousia number two. And it's all different. He's actually landing on the earth. Mount Olivet shatters. I mean, there's a major earthquake. And he's bringing um, his kingdom in. He's bringing peace and bringing his kingdom. And he's there to rule and reign. Whereas the other one, he's bringing them to heaven. And judgment is coming. 
So one, peace is coming. One, is judgment's coming. One, he's in the sky. One, he's on the earth. So we begin to realize there is a coming called parousia number one, and it is the rapture of the church. And it says there's going to be a generation of people that they're going to be living in their mortal bodies, walking around on the earth. And Paul goes in great detail in Thessalonians and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he says there are going to be a generation of people, hear me very carefully, they're walking around in their mortal living bodies. And in the moment, in an instant, their mortal bodies are changed in a moment and their bodies become immortal. And they literally are caught up and the word is snatched. They're forcefully grabbed and snatched. And they are literally caught, they, they literally are elevated in the air to meet Jesus in the air to go to the place that he revealed for the first time in John chapter 14 that he's preparing for them. They're going up to be there. The second coming, they come down with him. They're coming with him seven years later with him to rule and reign on this earth after the tribulation. Very important that you understand this. You say, well, man, that's weird. Nothing like that's ever happened on the earth. It has actually happened. You know, when Jesus was died and resurrected, how many know that there were bodies, literally the reports and the history, his bodies were coming out of graves of saints and they were resurrected with Christ. How many know that? This has happened before. How many know that witnesses watched um, as Elijah was elevated in, the, in a fiery chariot, they watched him go into heaven and seen him literally resurrected in front of them, or, or literally elevated into, into heaven in front of them. Enoch was walking along, and everybody in that ancient world says he was just gone. I mean, this is something that has a foundation in the Bible. And you say, well, man, when that happens, the whole world is going to realize that something really weird and supernatural happened. And, 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 and trust me, they are. And, it's, and they're going to realize suddenly that something just happened and there's no turning back now. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. The tribulation doesn't start until the signing of the seven-year agreement. So unless the rapture happens and the Antichrist is there with the pen in his hand, the seven-year tribulation hasn't started yet. It's something that's very important to understand because most Christians think rapture and immediately we're in the tribulation. And that's very possibly could happen. Because in Revelation, we see the church mentioned all the way up to the scene in heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, we see multitudes that suddenly end up in the throne And then we don't see the church mentioned at all after that, the rest of Revelation. The rest of the judgments and the wrath, the Bible says that we have been, uh, the church has been, uh, in fact, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, the church of Philadelphia, it says they'll literally be uh, taken or snatched. The same uh, Greek uh, wording that they use in Thessalonians, they'll literally be taken from that hour of temptation. And it's not saying that they're protected from the temptation or, or the trial or the hour. It says they're literally taken from that period of time, the church of Philadelphia. So here is the church that is taken away. It's called the rapture. And it's very important that you understand this because this is different than every other generation. Every other generation, death is the thing where you have to make a decision. Now, this generation that sees this, and why do I say that maybe we're that generation? Because there was one thing that had to happen. 
There had to be a nation called Israel. Because if there's not a nation called Israel, there's not a seven-year peace agreement. If there's not a nation called Israel, in fact, what is Israel's role in this last end times? Israel's role is they're going to come back from all the nations of the world. It's 1152. Everybody all right to bear with me here? Israel must be a nation and they must come from all the nations of the world. In fact, there have been times they have been in Egyptian captivity. There's times they were in Babylonian captivity, Assyrian captivity. Uh, They've been in Persian captivity. Uh, They've been subject to the Greeks. They've been subject to the Romans. But how many know every time God delivered them from each of those bondages, it was from one nation. But then this prophet named Ezekiel, okay, he was a 30-year-old man that went in bondage in Babylon. And uh, how many know that's the last time Israel was an independent nation was when Babylon took them captive. And so God gave him a vision, and very important that you understand this for the end times. God gave Ezekiel a vision of a valley of bones. And it was armed, uh, it was an army of Israel that had been defeated in the Babylonian uh, captivity, okay? They most believe it was an Israeli army that had been long past dead. And so God takes him in the spirit to this valley, and he says, hey, Ezekiel, begin to look. In the last days, this is what I'm going to do. And he showed him a vision of skin literally beginning to grow on that army. Skin begin to, um, ligaments beginning to grow on those bones, long past dead. And they begin to grow into a living army again. And God breathes the breath of life into that valley and that whole army comes alive. And he says, what is this? And he said, in 3711, I believe is Ezekiel 3711, he says, this is the whole house of Israel. And he said, I'm going to bring them from every nation of the world and they're going to come back to their homeland. And so we begin to see, in fact, I wrote the timeline down. In fact, 1881 to 1900, 30,000 Jews came from persecution in Russia to Palestine. 1897, um, they began the first Zionist Congress. And I don't care what you think about the Zionist Congress and what you've read and what you've heard. It doesn't matter. They're coming from all the nations of the world coming together in Israel. 32,000 more came from 1904 to 1914 from Poland. I'm sorry, Russian persecution. Another group came from Poland, 78,000 between 1924 and 1932. 1933 to 39, 230,000 more came. They were persecuted in Germany and Central Europe. Uh, 1940 to 1948, 95,000 came from Central Europe, moved to Palestine, and then 6 million were murdered by Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. 1948, they became a state. 1967, um, they were attacked by all the Arab nations and they captured Jerusalem. And so right now, in fact, I don't even know what the numbers are right now, uh, but there's more Jews than there are in New York and more Jews than there are in America that are in Israel right now. In fact, I think they've already surpassed where there are more Jews in Israel than anywhere else in the world put together. The whole, they came from all the nations of the world, just like the Bible said, they were yielded from every nation of the world and became a nation. In church, that's no other generation. In fact, I tell you, Revelation has not been able to be interpreted. In fact, you'll have a group of people that are called preterists. 
And around 1500, they started saying to themselves, well, look, everything was fulfilled before AD 70. In fact, if you're a full preterist, you're, you're actually serious biblical heir because you're actually claiming there wasn't a resurrection, that the resurrection was when Christ was resurrected with the ones that were brought up out of the grave. So if you're a full preterist, you're considered a heretic. Partial preterists would say, yeah, that wasn't the resurrection. It's still to come. So you'll see partial preterists. But they say all of it happened in the first century. But you can't say that because there are lots of events in Matthew 24 and the prophetic uh, timetable that never happened in 70. In fact, the cosmic disturbances, all the things that the Bible said would happen, um, all it just did not happen in 70 AD. And then you had the historicist. In fact, if you go through history and you look at Martin Luther and John Knox and, you know, John Calvin and all of the ancient reformers, they all began to look at all of the book of Revelation. They begin to say, hey, wait a minute, the Catholic Church and the, and the, and the Roman, uh, papacy, that is the beast. You know, the mark of the beast is, uh, what the Roman Church, uh, required everybody to accept, you know, all this. And, and they begin to say that the locust invasion of Revelation was the, you know, um, the Muslim invasion of Israel. And they begin to historically try to find eras that fulfilled these prophecies. And, um, and that was really good for a while. But then something happened and Israel became a nation. And people were like, well, wait a minute. We were totally wrong. We did not expect Israel to become a nation. And when Israel became a nation and from all around the world, they began to assemble. And then um, now we have Israel as a nation preparing to build a temple. And you say, well, why is that important? Because halfway through the tribulation, there's a temple built. And the Antichrist comes in and it's called the abomination that causes desolation. It says in Revelation 13 that there's going to be a mark that is given, that you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't eat food, you can't do anything unless you have the mark of the beast. And church, you've got to be a fool not to see that in the works. You've got to be a fool. And you say, well, why are you telling me all this? Because it's not just death that our generation has to worry about. If we're not raptured with the church... The Bible, every way, Jesus in, in Matthew 24 uh, says that he has provided a way of escape. Um, the church of Philadelphia, he doesn't want the church to be appointed to wrath. Romans, he says, we're not appointed to wrath. God very clearly wants to get us out of here. In fact, you say, is that biblical? Yes, it's very biblical. In fact, um, before God brings judgment, before God can actually bring and execute judgment in the world, He has to get believers out of there. We are the restrainer that is holding back the Antichrist. Why is that? Because Jesus was at a place, and I know I'm going fast here, but I want to make sure you know all this. Jesus went to the very north of Israel before He died. When He was on His way to head to Jerusalem, He went to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount um, base of Mount Hermon. And it's a location where they believe the gates of hell are. All of these pagan temples are there. Jesus took his disciples up to all these pagan temples. And he said, here, in this place, in the middle of all these pagan temples, let me tell you something. I'm building my church on the profession of faith and the gates of hell cannot prevail. My church will always win. You know what happens in the tribulation? The saints are losing. 
That can't happen with the church. As long as the church is here, the enemy cannot build his one world government. The enemy cannot succeed. The Antichrist can't be released to conquer the world as long as we're here, church. But when we're gone, the first thing you see is the release of this person called the Antichrist. And church, can I tell you, when that church is gone, a trigger happens. What happens when the food supply is deprived of that many people? There's a world famine. There's a world shortage. There's a vacuum of leadership. United States, I guarantee you, is not going to be around as a power when we're gone. We're the only thing holding back judgment in this nation right now. When we're gone, and everybody who wants the church gone will, will finally get their wish, will be gone. And that brings me to this tribulation. If you did not go with the church, and you not, were not protected from the wrath... There is a, there is a very well documented immediately in the tribulation, that seven year period, we're going to be hunted like animals. Because every believer is going to be gone. But guess what happens after every believer is gone? People begin to love the truth and there begin to be what's called tribulation saints. People that have believed after the church has been delivered. And there are people that are coming to Christ. We see them in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9. We see these tribulation saints that are on the earth and they've lost their ability to go with Christ. And they're hunted like animals. Trust me. I've studied the Bible, like I said, for 25, 30 years and you've got to hear this message. This isn't a speech. This isn't a, you know, another Sunday. This is some of our last chances. And if it happens in this generation, there will be a religious persecution that will be worldwide. There won't be churches. There won't be Christians anymore. And so if you become a believer in the tribulation, you're going to find these Christians. How many noticed with Afghanistan going door to door, knocking on every door, looking for this person and that person? Can I tell you something? That's mild compared to what's going to happen in the tribulation. You don't have the Christian church to protect you anymore. You won't have Christians around anymore. It will be all this wickedness. In fact, the Bible calls it a great apostasy. In fact, the, the, the covenant will not be signed. The Antichrist will not appear yet until first the great rebellion occurs. It's called the great apostasy. It has to happen first, according to Thessalonians. And so when there are no Christians left in this world, and we've got tribulation saints believing now in the gospel, guess what the rest of the world's religion is going to be? Wiping out every Christian. The church, Christians will almost become extinct on the earth. They'll be hiding in holes. They'll be hiding in the woods. They won't have food. They'll starve to death. And church, I'm not exaggerating. If you become a believer after the rapture, you literally will starve to death. You can't take that mark or you'll be condemned. If you take the mark of the beast in order to eat food, you will be condemned eternally. We will, we will hide in, if we're there at that time, and I don't want anybody here to be there at that time, I want you to get right now. Because if we're there at that time, you'll literally starve to death in order to be saved. It's different than it is now. You'll be hunted everywhere. Your family members, the Bible says, will turn you in. And if you don't believe me, just look at this meanness starting to rise now. 
Okay, and I'm not gonna, I'm not one of those that's saying vaccinated, unvaccinated, having this whole argument. Okay? But I'm just telling you, there's a meanness right now. And in the tribulation, it will be ratcheted up to an extreme. We will be public enemy number one if you're a believer. And so there will be one group the Bible says will be protected, and that will be the physical state of Israel will be protected after three and a half years. They'll be, they'll be protected by God, and there will be 144,000 evangelists that will be protected. Everybody else will be hunted like animals. I'm just telling you the truth from somebody who studied it my whole life. Okay, and then Israel, when we're not there to protect them, Israel will be attacked somewhere before the tribulation. Tribulation starts with a seven-year agreement. But the um, after three and a half years, Israel will go, um, they'll figure out that there's an abomination called desolation, and they'll run from Jerusalem. Well, they have to have seven years after the war of Ezekiel 38 they have to have seven years to burn weapons. All right? So there have to be a seven-year period there before the middle of the tribulation. And so there's going to be a war at some point where Iran, Russia, um, Somalia, several of the Muslim nations are going to come together. In fact, they're all allies right now. So I say we could be this generation. And what's going to happen is they're going to come together against Israel to wipe them off the map. And there's a really good chance it could be because we've been raptured. Because America's not there to protect them. Nobody's there to protect them. In fact, it says that nobody comes to their defense. God comes to their defense. And the whole world marvels because God protected them against this coalition of all the Muslim nations and Russia came against them and they lose Israel at that time wins and becomes very powerful. Why do you think the Antichrist makes an agreement with Israel? Those are the two powers at that time. Israel wins this major war. The Antichrist now is located in Europe. And now all the Muslim and Russians have been destroyed in this battle. It's a whole different landscape. And America is so heavy with Christians. And I know it doesn't seem like it, but we are. They're not even mentioned in those prophecies. And so I'm just telling you, all these things are what are about to occur if we're that generation. And so I'm telling you, it's not just death now, which can happen at any moment, but it's also all of these end time signs appear to be that we're that generation. And so I'm just going to tell you, close your eyes. I'm, I'm sorry, stand to your feet, worship team. I'm just going to leave these altars open. It's the time for begging people to be saved is over. And you say, man, I don't know if I can... Go up there now, but I want to talk to you. I want to make sure I'm right with the Lord. Talk to me because I want to help you do that. Talk to me privately. Call me privately. Pull me aside. Come down this morning. If you're not right with God, find a place at that altar. And uh, we, we will pray with you. We'll lead you in the sinner's prayer. We'll baptize you in water. At any time that's convenient for you, we'll do it. Um, we will lead you in discipleship. With Christ, I'll personally do it if you want to be discipled. And you say, man, I'm working through a lot of failures. That's all right. That's part of the plan that we're going to try our best and still fail. How many know that? But please get yourself right with God. There's not time to play around anymore. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. You know, this rapture is going to happen suddenly. It's It's called imminent. The imminent return of Christ is going to happen suddenly, quickly, 
and then everything's just going to change on a dime. How many know that when that occurs? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that um, I would be hidden. Lord God, I'm nobody. Lord, this isn't my message. It's your message, Lord. It's your word. And uh, just by your spirit, quicken hearts to, to, to be courageous, to get right, settle, reconcile with you, Lord. Receive your free gift, Lord God, that we can live with a blessed hope, Lord God, that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you said encourage ourselves with this in a moment of a twinkling of an eye. Lord, I'm so ready. I'm so excited. Lord, when I see the signs approaching, I'm excited for myself. And Lord God, I'm petrified for everybody else, Lord God. It's not right. And so Lord, let everybody have that joy of knowing that it's almost time. Lord, look up your redemption, draw nigh, Lord God. Lord, the hope of glory, Lord God, the blessed hope that it's almost time, Lord God. I'm so excited. But Lord, I pray that everybody would find that peace and that joy that only comes through getting right with you, Lord. Touch hearts today. In your name I pray. Amen. it was Braxton was up here calling out names of people that uh, he's burdened for right now I talked about spiritual anxiety like I said the cure is for your own life to believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life and for the people around you the cure is to be calling out those names and praying for the Holy Spirit to move in every life remember we're going to fill that tank up water and i want that tank to be available at all times if you've given your heart to the lord i can't tell you the feeling it was in my life when i truly became a believer and i wasn't in that water and boy that was some dirty water it was clean when i got in but you know what i'm i'm being facetious here right it wasn't the water but god cleaned up me by the power of his blood and cleaned me up and put me in that water and I died to myself and rose up in the resurrection of life and uh, and there's nothing that can take me out of his hand hallelujah and so I want you to experience that in, in the name of Jesus hallelujah praise you Lord Heavenly Father we come before you today Lord and uh, pray that you bless those, Lord, who made that commitment to you today, Lord, that they would uh, have the strength and the courage to follow through with that commitment, and that you would pour your spirit upon them, Lord. You'd protect them, you would guide them, you would lead them, Lord, right into eternity with you, Lord. Hallelujah. Fill them with your joy and your blessed hope. Strengthen them day by day. Bless them, Lord. In your name I pray. Lord Jesus, thank you.
everybody said? Amen. Praise the Lord. We're going to get together at 3 o'clock today. Don't forget. Hallelujah.